one day she just decided by Mark Anthony Poet. And one day she just decided she would live for herself and not for others and nobody had the power to make her miserable ever again. High atop the steps of the Great Pyramid of Giza, a young woman laughed. Tame Brown, Angels and Demons. By Diane Brown. Simon and Schuster Audio presents Angels and Demons by Dan Brown. Read by Richard Poe. largest scientific research facility. Switzerland's Conseil Européen pour la Recherche Nucléaire, CERN, recently succeeded in producing the first particles of antimatter. Antimatter is identical to physical matter, except that it is composed of particles whose electric charges are opposite to those found in normal matter. Antimatter is the most powerful energy source known to man. It releases energy with 100% efficiency. Nuclear fission is 1.5% efficient. Antimatter creates no pollution or radiation, and a droplet could power New York City for a full day. There is, however, one catch. Antimatter is highly unstable. It ignites when it comes in contact with absolutely anything, even air. A single gram of antimatter contains the energy of a 20-kiloton nuclear bomb, the size of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Until recently, antimatter has been created only in very small amounts, a few atoms at a time. But CERN has now broken ground on its new antiproton decelerator, an advanced antimatter production facility that promises to create antimatter in much larger quantities. One question looms. Will this highly volatile substance save the world, or will it be used to create the most deadly weapon ever made? The author also notes that references in Angels and Demons to all works of art, tombs, tunnels, and architecture in Rome are entirely factual. They can still be seen today. The Brotherhood of the Illuminati is also factual. And now, Angels and Demons. Prologue. Physicist Leonardo Veto smelled burning flesh, and he knew it was his own. He stared up in terror at the dark figure looming over him. What do you want? La chiave, the raspy voice replied. The password. But I don't... The intruder pressed down again, grinding the white-hot object deeper into Vetra's chest. There was the hiss of broiling flesh. Vetra cried out in agony. There is no password. He felt himself drifting toward unconsciousness. 
the figure glared. Neovevo Paura. I was afraid of that. Vaitra fought to keep his senses, but the darkness was closing in. His only solace was in knowing his attacker would never obtain what he had come for. A moment later, however, the figure produced a blade and brought it to Vaitra's face. The blade hovered, carefully, searchingly. For the love of God! Vaitra screamed, but it was too late. Chapter One. High atop the steps of the Great Pyramid of Giza, a young woman laughed and called down to him. Robert, hurry up. I knew I should have married a younger man. Her smile was magic. He struggled to keep up, but his legs felt like stone. Wait, he begged. Please. As he climbed, his vision began to blur. There was a thundering in his ears. I must reach her. When he looked up again, the woman had disappeared. In her place stood an old man with rotting teeth. The man stared down, curling his lips into a lonely grimace. Then he let out a scream of anguish that resounded across the desert. Robert Langdon awoke with a start from his nightmare. The phone beside his bed was ringing. Dazed, he picked up the receiver. Hello? I'm looking for Robert Langdon man's voice said. Langdon sat up in his empty bed and tried to clear his mind. This is Robert Langdon. He squinted at his digital clock. It was 5.18 a.m. I must see you immediately. Who is this? My name is Maximilian Kohler. I'm a discreet particle physicist. A what? Langdon could barely focus. Are you sure you've got the right Langdon? You're a professor of religious iconology at Harvard University. You've written three books on symbology and... Do you know what time it is? I apologize. I have something you need to see. I can't discuss it on the phone. A knowing groan escaped Langdon's lips. This had happened before. One of the perils of writing books about religious symbology was the calls from religious zealots who wanted him to confirm their latest sign from God. Last month, a stripper from Oklahoma had promised Langdon the best sex of his life if he would fly down and verify the authenticity of a cruciform that had magically appeared on her bedsheets. The Shroud of Tulsa, Langdon had called it. How did you get my number? Langdon tried to be polite, despite the hour. On the World Wide Web, the site for your book, Langdon frowned. He was damn sure his book site didn't include his home phone number. The man was obviously lying. I need to see you, the caller insisted. I'll pay you well. Now Langdon was getting mad. I'm sorry, but I really... If you leave immediately, you can be here by... I'm not going anywhere. It's five o'clock in the morning. Langdon hung up and collapsed back in bed. He closed his eyes and tried to fall back asleep. It was no use. The dream was emblazoned in his mind. Reluctantly, he put on his robe and went downstairs. Robert Langdon wandered barefoot through his deserted Massachusetts Victorian home and nursed his ritual insomnia remedy, 
a mug of steaming Nestle's Quick. The April moon filtered through the bay windows and played on the oriental carpets. Langdon's colleagues often joked that his place looked more like an anthropology museum than a home. His shelves were packed with religious artifacts from around the world. An Iquaba from Ghana, a gold cross from Spain, a Cycladic idol from the Aegean, and even a rare woven Bacchus from Borneo, a young warrior's symbol of perpetual youth. As Langdon sat on his brass Maharishi's chest and savored the warmth of the chocolate, the bay window caught his reflection. The image was distorted and pale, like a ghost, an aging ghost, he thought, cruelly reminded that his youthful spirit was living in a mortal shell. Although not overly handsome in a classical sense, the 40-year-old Langdon had what his female colleagues referred to as an erudite appeal. Wisps of gray in his thick brown hair, probing blue eyes, an arrestingly deep voice, and the strong, carefree smile of a collegiate athlete. A varsity diver in prep school and college, Langdon still had the body of a swimmer, a toned, six-foot physique that he vigilantly maintained with 50 laps a day at the university pool. Langdon's friends had always viewed him as a bit of an enigma, a man caught between centuries. On weekends, he could be seen lounging on the quad in blue jeans, discussing computer graphics or religious history with students. Other times, he could be spotted in his Harris tweed and paisley vest, photographed in the pages of upscale art magazines at museum openings, where he'd been asked to lecture. Although a tough teacher and strict disciplinarian, Langdon was the first to embrace what he hailed as the lost art of good, clean fun. He relished recreation with an infectious fanaticism that had earned him a fraternal acceptance among his students. His campus nickname, The Dolphin, was a reference both to his affable nature and his legendary ability to dive into a pool and outmaneuver the entire opposing squad in a water polo match. As Langdon sat alone, absently gazing into the darkness, the silence of his home was shattered again, this time by the ring of his fax machine. Too exhausted to be annoyed, Langdon forced a tired chuckle. God's people, he thought. Two thousand years of waiting for their Messiah, and they're still persistent as hell. Wearily, he returned his empty mug to the kitchen and walked slowly to his oak-paneled study. The incoming fax lay in the tray. Sighing, he scooped up the paper and looked at it. Instantly, a wave of nausea. The image on the page was that of a human corpse. The body had been stripped naked, and its head had been twisted, facing completely backward. On the victim's chest was a terrible burn. The man had been branded, imprinted with a single word. It was a word Langdon knew well, very well. He stared at the ornate lettering in disbelief. Illuminati. He stammered, his heart pounding. It can't be. In slow motion, afraid of what he was about to witness, Langdon rotated the facts 180 degrees. He looked at the word upside down. Instantly, the breath went out of him. It was like he had been hit by a truck. 
barely able to believe his eyes, he rotated the facts again, reading the brand right side up and then upside down. Illuminati, he whispered. Stunned, Langdon collapsed in a chair. He sat a moment in utter bewilderment. Gradually, his eyes were drawn to the blinking red light on his fax machine. Whoever had sent this fax was still on the line, waiting to talk. Langdon gazed at the blinking light a long time. Then, trembling, he picked up the receiver. Chapter 2. Do I have your attention now? The man's voice said when Langdon finally answered the line. Yes, sir, you damn well do. You want to explain yourself? I tried to tell you before. The voice was rigid, mechanical. I'm a physicist. I run a research facility. We've had a murder. You saw the body. How did you find me? Langdon could barely focus. His mind was racing from the image on the facts. I already told you. The World Wide Web. The site for your book. The art of the Illuminati. Langdon tried to gather his thoughts. His book was virtually unknown mainstream literary circles, but it had developed quite a following online. Nonetheless, the caller's claim still made no sense. That page has no contact information, Langdon challenged. I'm certain of it. I have people here at the lab very adept at extracting user information from the web. Langdon was skeptical. Sounds like your lab knows a lot about the web. We should, the man fired back. We invented it. Something in the man's voice told Langdon he was not joking. I must see you, the caller insisted. This is not a matter we can discuss on the phone. My lab is only an hour's flight from Boston. Langdon stood in the dim light of his study and analyzed the facts in his hand. The image was overpowering, possibly representing the epigraphical find of the century. A decade of his research confirmed in a single symbol. It's urgent, the voice pressured. Langdon's eyes were locked on the brand. Hi, guys. 6.34 p.m. on... Sunday evening, September 19th, 2021. Well, we're going to continue with more audio books and ebooks and references before we read the next ebook. Or a preview of an ebook about the Eastern stars we'll need to read from the book of Judges, chapter 11, 29 through 40. 11, make a quick note here, 29 through 40. 
glory and to give the background for that chapter we'll go to chapter to give the background for Judges 11 and 29 through 40 we'll go back into chapter 9 and 10 of Judges and see what's What's going on there? In chapter 9, Abimelech, son of Jerubabal, Jerubal, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you to have all 70 of Jerubbaal's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech or Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. They gave him seventy shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth and Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his seventy brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, Jerubbabel, but Jotham. The youngest son of Jerubbaal escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown. Abimelech king when Jotham was told about this he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them listen to me citizens of Shechem 
so that God may listen to you. One day, the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next, the trees said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, Come and be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men, to hold sway over the trees? Finally all the men, finally all the trees said, to the thorn bush, come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Jerubal and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, then to think that my father fought for you, risked his life in rescue, risked his life to rescue you, from the hand of Midian, but today you have revolted against my father's family, murdered his 70 sons on a single stone, and made Abimelech the son of his slave girl, the son of his slave girl king over the citizens of Shechem because he is your brother? If then 
you have acted honorably and in good faith toward Jerubbaal and his family today. May Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, after Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the children of Shechem, who acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jerubbaal's seventy sons the shedding of their blood might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers in opposition to him the citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by and this was reported to Abimelech now Gaal, son of Ebed, moved with his brothers into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence on him. In him, after they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their gods. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Baal, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem? That we should be subject to him. Isn't he Jerubbaal's son? And isn't Sebul 
his deputy serve the men of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech if only if only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. When Sepul, the governor of the city, heard what Gal, son of Ebed, said, he was very angry. Under cover, he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Gal, son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning at sunrise, advanced, advanced against the city. When Gaul and his men Come out against you. Do whatever your hand finds to do. So Abimelech, Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now, Gaal, son of Abed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance to the city gate, just as Abimelech and his soldiers came out from their hiding place. When Gaal saw them, he said to Sebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Sebul replied, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. But Gaal spoke up again, Look, people are coming down the center of the land and a company is coming from the direction of the soothsayer's tree. Then Sepul said to him, Where is your big talk now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that he should be subject to him. Aren't 
appease the men you ridicule go out and fight them so Gaal led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech Abimelech chased him and men fell wounded in the flight all the way to the entrance to the gate. Abimelech stayed in Aruma and Sabul drove Gal and his brothers out of Shechem. Judges 9 and 42. The next day the people of Shechem went out to the fields and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the company with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance to the city gate. Then two companies rushed upon those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of El Aris. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up Mount Salmon. He took an axe and cut off some branches which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, Quick, do what you have seen me do. So all men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. 
inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city, fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so that they cannot say the woman killed him. So his servant ran and threw, and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came to them, came on them. Was the end of chapter nine and in verse fifty-seven? Uh, the curse is in verse twenty. Let's see what the curse was. We read it, but I want to see what. This was 20. of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come out from you citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Hmm. That was 
because the payback because of the murder of the 70 brothers. Okay, now let's 57 9 and 57 God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerub, Baal came on them. That means the, the men of Shechem will burn up by fire. Ooh. Okay, let's review 10. Tola, T-O-L-A. After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar, Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. Jair. Oh yeah, I like them a lot. Jair. J-A-I-R. Jair. He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons <laughs> who rode 30 donkeys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. He controlled 30 towns <laughs> in Gilead, which to this Days are called Havoth Jair. When Jair died, he was buried in Hamon. Oh, that's it. He had 30 sons and rode 30 donkeys. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's why I remember him. Ten A six Jephthah. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He said, he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them for eight or eighteen years they op 
press off the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Amorites also crushed, also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah. I highlighted it in a dark green and it's hard to see it now. The Amorites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah. Benjamin and the house of Ephraim and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Manites oppressed you. And you cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hand? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you. When you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best. But please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord and he could hear Israel's misery no longer and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms in camp in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be 
uh, all the way up to Judges 11. Jephthah the Gileite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the sons of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, T-O-B, Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead sent to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander, and we can fight the Amorites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and... The Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Eleven and twenty-seven.
three Johnson messengers to the Ammonite king with the question What do you have against us that you have attacked our country? King of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the desert skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sahon and all his men 
into Israel's hands. Then they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people, Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, what ever the Lord, our God, has given us, we will possess. Are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aurora, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord the judge decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. 28 Judges 11 and 28 The king of Ammon however paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering.
she would never marry. 39. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed and she was a virgin. From this the Israelite custom 40 verse 40 that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite Gileadite All of that, <laughs> all of that is what we needed just to get to 29 through 40. 
look past each other, the violet Josiah made to the Lord that caused him to sacrifice his only child. And I didn't check the notes, the footnotes. I'm assuming that he um, murdered, put her to death. Whew. Scan the notes real quick here and see what it says. Here, 11 and 30 footnotes. Says, made a vow, a common practice among the Israelites. See Genesis 28 and 20, 1 Samuel 1 and 11, 2 Samuel 15 and 8. The precise nature of this vow has been the subject of wise speculation, but Verse 31 indicates the promise of a burnt offering and leads to the conclusion that Jephthah probably offered his daughter as a human sacrifice. A vow was not to be broken. See Numbers 30 and 2, Deuteronomy 23 and 21 through 23. Also, Ecclesiastes 5 and 4 through 5. Well, a burnt offering. He didn't say... He would sacrifice the life. So I'm not going to read anything into it. Let every person make their own conclusion. Okay, I'll have to start. Excuse me, I'll have to start another segment to read this uh, ebook and this one is almost out of time but it's about the eastern stars the eastern star group the female equivalent of the masons so Thank you for listening, and there's more. Check the next segment. From the Bible book, Ruth, chapter 1, in one through seven and then eight through seventeen.
judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Nahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, after they had lived there. About ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dad and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you 
to find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Number 14. This, at this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her. Sixteen. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. 17. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me.
Esther 4 and 2. Mordecai persuades Esther to help. Esther 4. Mordecai persuades Esther to help. When Mordecai learned, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly, too. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. They're referring to the plot, the conspiracy by Haman to kill the Jews in chapter 3 of Esther. Preceding chapter, Mordecai secured Esther's help to beat down um, Haman's conspiracy to kill all the Jews. In chapter 5, Esther's request to the king is granted. the king to have her uncle Mordecai attend a banquet. I know she requested a banquet. I believe Mordecai was requested. And then after Haman was She's upset in her heart in a rage against Mordecai. In chapter 6, Mordecai is honored for exposing Haman's plot. And Haman is ordered to be hanged in chapter 7. Mordecai is promoted to Haman's position, the right hand of the king, number one governor.
in chapter 7, Haman is hanged. Seven and two through five, Haman is hanged. So, so the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom will be granted. The, the queen then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition, and they are my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Five. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Seven, the king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life.
Lazarus, John, the Gospel of John 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. 
His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So when, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. John 11 and 16. Then Thomas called Didymus said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus comforts the sisters. On his arrival, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will Rise again, Martha answered. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, he told her. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God.
he was to come into the world again after she had said that she went back and called her sister Mary aside the teacher is here she said and is asking for you when Mary heard this she got up quickly and went to him now Jesus had not yet entered the village but was still at the place where Martha had met him and the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord replied Jesus wept thirty six John eleven and thirty six then the Jew said see how he loved him but some of them said could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. John 11 and 38. Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. For he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
they took away the stone, then Jesus looked up and said, Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Forty-five, John 11, verse 45, the plot to kill Jesus Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one Men die for the people, then that the whole nation perish.
he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. <laughs> 